Good. All right, let us begin. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you for bringing us together again on this beautiful day. No weather and all of that. Also on, on, on All Souls Day. A very appropriate time. So we ask your blessing on our efforts today to help us to understand uh, the purpose of the Jewish monarchy, the problems of the Jewish monarchy, the advantages of the Jewish monarchy, and all of the above. So we ask your blessing, help us to truly understand what it is that you want us to understand. So we thank you and we praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. Today I'd like to talk about the period of the Jewish monarchy, which extended from the time of of David down to the Babylonian captivity, which is not quite 400 or 500 years, but in that vicinity. I generally say 500 years because of the large periods of time. The Jewish monarchy, I think, uh, was a time that was extremely interesting. I often say that it was the most productive time and the most destructive time of Jewish history. So much happened. And I'm sure that if you read the book of Kings, or the books of Kings, uh, remember in the Jewish scripture, it's only one book. Um, in the Septuagint, or the Greek version of the Old Testament, it becomes two books. As you can. Anyways, let's go on. I'm trying to get across the fact that the Jewish monarchy was a time really set apart. And you don't hear much about it. The Jewish people in themselves do not celebrate it because of the number of problems that they were accused of. And if you read the books of Kings, which I hope you have done, you'll get enough of the negative side. And so I don't want to get into that. I think that there's enough there. You understand why the monarchy was called the most destructive period of time. Particularly if you understood the uh, Assyrian invasion of the northern uh, kingdom. Remember that after Solomon, his son Rehoboam uh, ascended to the to the throne, and he was the one that permitted the division or the separation again of the various tribal uh, provinces or whatever you would want to call them. Remember, David was the one that united uh, Israel and all of the kingdoms that existed because of the um, division of property at the time of Joshua among the tribes. David was the one that brought them all together under one kingdom with himself. Solomon could not, I mean, Saul could not do that. Um, But David finally uh, succeeded in bringing it 
all under, and they were in agreement. Uh, then Solomon uh, succeeded David and continued being the king over all of Israel. His son Rehoboam was a much weaker person and did not want to do that, and the northern tribes uh, wanted the separation. And so Rehoboam said, essentially, okay, well, so be it. Uh, There are a number of things in the book of Kings and in Chronicles that describes a lot of the detail. I don't feel that it's important for us to uh, spend time on getting into the details of all the whys and wherefores. But nevertheless, the kingdom was split at the time of Rehoboam, and this would be in the uh, end of the 10th century or beginning of the 9th century uh, B.C. The kingdom was split with Judah and the province of Judah and the province of Dan in the south into one kingdom with retaining the name of Judah. All of the other ten tribes in the north, or north of Judah and Dan, uh, retained the name of Israel. And that lasted until the uh, Babylonian captivity. Now, the north, in the northern part of Israel, the kings went off on their own. They were influenced by surrounding uh, nations and the kings of the surrounding nations, and they just degraded themselves into uh, a situation that could only be uh, overcome by God's allowing the Assyrians to invade and conquer all of the northern kingdom of Israel in the year 722 B.C., and the king of Assyria carted off most of those people that could do any good um, for them, for the Assyrians, and took them off into Assyria, never to be seen again. The same thing happened 130 years later in the southern kingdom. Uh, even though there were a number of good kings, or a couple of good kings in the southern kingdom, Hezekiah and Josiah, uh, not together, there was a lot of a hundred years separation between them, uh, they tried, but they did not succeed in righting the wrongs of those kings. The constant uh, degrading of morals and lifestyle in both kingdoms led both of them into exile. But I don't want to go and spend a great deal of time on that. I think you already know it or can see it from reading those books. I want to spend the time here on some of the good things that happened at this period of time. One of the good things is, and we've talked about this before, was the 
uh, writing down of scripture. Again, as I said in the past, we don't know for sure it was either David or Solomon, most likely Solomon, who encouraged the Jewish people to write their histories because all of the nations had many records of their own histories and the Jewish people at this point in time handed down their histories by word of mouth, but they did not have any permanent records. And so it was, I believe, Solomon, and we'll just say Solomon for sure, uh, that encouraged the people to start writing their histories down. And that is that became the four groups that I have given you a little schedule uh, earlier in this session. The four groups, the Yahweh, the Elohist, uh, the priestly and the Deuteronomist groups. They came along at different times, beginning in about the 8th century B.C. down to the uh, 5th or 6th century B.C. Uh, but each had its own influence on the histories. And that is why, uh, because some of two of them were in the north and two of them were in the south, they had the same history, but different viewpoints, different understandings, different appreciations. And that's why you have so many duplicate uh, stories and sometimes triplicate stories in the Bible of the same events. Uh, we even have that in the New Testament. Uh, in Matthew and Luke's Gospel, you have the feeding of the 5,000. Actually, it's in all of the four Gospels, but there are uh, also a mention of the feeding of the 4,000. We feel that that could be another example of a similar story getting into uh, the Gospels or the historical writings of the New Testament uh, from uh, different sources giving us versions of the same event. We don't know that for sure. Um, but the monarchy had a lot of good things to say and to accomplish. One of the most important things that had a great deal of lasting influence was the book of Deuteronomy was developed by, obviously, the Deuteronomists in the northern uh, kingdom of Israel, beginning around the 8th century B.C. And because of the apostasy, the sinfulness of the people at that time, it was not accepted. Because what it was trying to do was take all of the remembered writings of Moses and put them together as if it was Moses speaking to the people directly and warning them that if they don't correct their ways, that God was going to, pardon the expression, lower the boom on them. <clears throat> For example, if you go to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, I believe it is, they offered sacrifices to demons, to no gods, to gods with a small g, uh, whom they had not known before, to newcomers just arrived, 
of whom their fathers had never stood in awe. You were unmindful of the rock, that is God himself, that begot you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. When the Lord saw this, he was filled with loathing and anger toward his sons and daughters. I will hide my face from them, he said, and see what will then become of them. What a fickle race they are. Sons have no loyalty in them. Since they have provoked me with their no God and angered me with their vain idols, I will provoke them with a no people, with a foolish nation, I will anger them. For my wrath a fire is enkindled that shall rage to the depths of another world. Um, in fact, in another translation, an older translation I have, it is a little bit more direct, and it says, Oh, you stupid and fickle people. How can I stand you any longer? Um, and obviously, these people are not going to like that. I mean, would any of you like that? It's, someone said that about you, but here is the rulers or people in uh, prominent positions telling the people that they had sinned in a very severe way against the God that has been so good to them and given them so much. And yet, this book, Deuteronomy, was not accepted. And we're talking about Deuteronomy from chapter 4 through chapter 26, I believe it is. That was the main part. Uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3, and the first part of chapter 4, were written and added later, after the Babylonian captivity. Uh, and the remainder of Deuteronomy was also written at a later date. But never mind, the most important part was... Uh, written around the 8th century, that is, uh, just before the destruction of the northern uh, kingdom by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., some of the Deuteronomists, the people that made up this small group called the Deuteronomists, fled to southern uh, kingdom of Judah and brought the book with them. Unfortunately, it wasn't accepted there either. And so it became sort of uh, one of those things that you put on your coffee table and it's there, but you forget to even look at it. It was uh, put into the temple and not discovered until the time of uh, Josiah, the king of Judah, uh, in the early part of the 7th century B.C., uh, just before the Babylonian captivity. And luckily, uh, Josiah tried to get the people to uh, read it and review it and live by it. And though they made a big fuss, but they didn't like it, and it was ignored. But it was taken to Babylon, and there it became a very important book, which we will get into more next week. But the book of Deuteronomy was extremely influential, not only at the time of the uh, Babylonian captivity, but for later on. It became the basis for modern Judaism. It became the basis for their law. 
but I want to talk more about the effect of the Babylonian exile next week. Some of the things also, though, that I really want to get into is the prophets. Because of the sinfulness of both the north and the south, God had to do something. And as I said at one point in time, he could have wiped them out, like at the time of Noah and the ark. But that wouldn't have really uh, been of help, any help to him. It would not have permitted him to continue and extend the plan of salvation that he had worked so hard uh, to uh, get across and, and to implement. So what's he do? Out of his infinite love, he brings in a whole new group of people who tried to talk for him to the people. And these were the prophets. Now, we've had a few prophets in, in the past. Uh, Elijah and Elisha, I'm sure that you uh, understood and got a, sort of a whiff of both of those in reading the early books of uh, the second book of Kings, that is, uh, Elisha, or Elijah and Elisha. Actually, Elijah is more known and celebrated by the Jewish people than Elisha, but Elisha was probably more uh, productive in his work and did a lot more than Elijah. Elijah is the one that was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind and was got into Jewish legend, not history, but Jewish legend. And even today, at the Jewish Seder, at Passover, a separate place setting is set for Elijah because the legend says that Elijah has to return to earth uh, before he can die and go to the <coughs> bosom of Abraham. That's the way they voice it. Well, Jesus said Elijah has come to earth in the uh, form of John the Baptist because Elijah, as the prophet Malachi will tell you, uh, was the one that was going to announce the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, that is. And, of course, that was the whole purpose of John the Baptist. So we have that kind of legend that still exists in Jewish society today. Is there anything in the way they mentioned uh, Elijah was dressed, and John the Baptist was dressed kind of similar? Is that just trying to tie that into the, just trying to tie that in later on? Well, that's sort of, yeah, coincidental that, yes, Elijah and John the Baptist were dressed in uh, sheep's clothing and uh, lived uh, yes, with, the, with the belt and all of that. Now, that's more or less incidental. I don't recall any particular connection there. It would be a common dress for itinerant uh, preachers uh, of that time. Yeah. So you have those two people now uh, that were considered prophets. 
but they didn't leave any written records. Their history is included, but it was written by somebody else. The other prophets, um, for example, Samuel was all, all considered as a prophet. Nathan was often considered as a prophet. Actually, they were priests, but not prophets in the traditional sense. The prophets that we're going to be talking about and the ones that we generally think about and that we read in uh, scripture today are called the literary prophets because they led uh, or left us written records of their pronouncements. Some are very uh, short and others are uh, rather long, with Isaiah being the longest one. Now, I want to get into the contribution of the prophets because they are the ones that have spoken for God and many of the things that they talked about are applicable to all mankind today. So that you can read, if you read many of the prophets, their pronouncements, their teachings are applicable to us today. Now, some of them, of course, um, were meant only for the people at the time. But actually, all of what they said had to have meaning for the people at the time. Otherwise, they would have been of no value. I think I've mentioned this once before. Uh, So many people think that the prophets were people who talked about the future. Well, if they only talked about the future, it wouldn't have any bearing or of interest uh, on the people to whom they actually spoke. So the people at the time had to have understood either their prophet was talking to them and about them, or it was very clear that the prophets were talking about something in the future, but it was to give them hope. Uh, for example, Isaiah is the one that is the longest. And when I say longest, I'm talking about number of words. The books of the prophets are not in chronological order. They are in there in the uh, way of how many words are actually in each of those books. It's a strange way of doing it, but that was the way that uh, things were handled at that time. It is interesting in a way that in the New Testament, uh, all of the epistles or the letters are in the same order not in the order in which they were written, but in the quantity of verbiage. It seems a little strange to us, but that's the way it is. Now, the prophets, as I mentioned before, are not somebody who just tells the future. That might be part of it, but that is not their objective. The word prophet does not mean somebody who tells the future or discusses things only of the future. It really means somebody who speaks for God. 
Remember, the prophets were brought in to counterbalance the evils of the kings. Uh, We're talking about the educated Jewish people of this time. The people that could not read or write had to follow the rulers. And if you get into reading the book of Ezekiel, you'll see that there's a whole chapter on the shepherds. Now, be careful when you read that, because he is not speaking about shepherds as people who lead uh, the sheep around or take care of the sheep. He's talking about the Jewish rulers of that time period. And this would be the time period uh, roughly around this seventh end of the 7th century, early part of the 6th century B.C. and afterwards. Well, he's talking really uh, in metaphors using the term shepherds, but he is really chastising the Jewish leaders. And that is where we have to direct all of our attention and criticism. Because the most Most of the Jewish people at this time could not read or write, and therefore they had to follow and accept what was given to them or told to them by their leaders. And so it is the leaders that have to be held accountable. So the prophets were brought in to do this, to speak to the leaders, And again, there are 15 literary prophets, 15 men who left written records of their work, their pronouncements. And many of them are duplicates. Many of them say pretty much the same thing, but to different people at different time periods. There's a lot of similarity, particularly in the lesser prophets. You have them... And I think in the handout uh, for today, if you'll take this handout for for today here, you'll see the prophets now. They are not in there. They are in there pretty much in a chronological order rather than in the order that they are in the scriptures. But nevertheless, uh, I thought I had a copy up here, but I don't. All right. They are not, they're in here and somewhat in the, uh, well, frankly, uh, this is from a Protestant uh, listing, and I'm not certain just exactly here how they're in here. Uh, it doesn't seem to have any, pretty much in chronological order, though, I would think. That is not the way they are in uh, the Bible. They are in the order of the quantity of verbiage, 
with Isaiah being first. Isaiah is the longest of all of the prophets. And when you read that, you got to be careful because it is actually made up, the book of Isaiah is actually made up by three different people called Isaiah or three different groups. We're not certain. But chapters 1 through 39 is Isaiah of Jerusalem, the main and the first character. Uh, chapter 40 through 55 is the second Isaiah, and 56 through 66 is the last of the Isaiahs. All right? And if you understand that, and it's true with all of the prophets, when you read them, you've got to understand the time period and the location and to whom they are speaking. Because of these 15 prophets, they all came through Judaism in the period of the 10th century B.C. down to the 5th century B.C., and then they disappeared. And we'll get into that next week as to why they disappeared. All right? Or they faded out, I should say. Not so much disappeared, but uh, faded out. And who replaced them? But they spoke to different people at different time periods, uh, but the message was constantly the same. Return to God and repent of your evilness. And in many cases, for example, Second uh, Isaiah, that is chapters 40 through 55, it's all about hope. Trying to give these people hope that the Babylonian captivity will end and they will return to Israel, to their homeland. Right? So it's trying to give them hope. That period of time and those chapters, those 15 chapters, are often called the Song of the Suffering Servant because they are used in Catholic liturgy, liturgy at Easter time. They talk about Christ as being that suffering servant. And many of the words uh, in uh, that portion of Isaiah are repeated in the Gospels. And we use a lot of the wording out of Second Isaiah on Good Friday uh, in our liturgy. In fact, many of the prophets, or much of the prophets' writings, are used more in Catholic or Christian literature and ceremonies than they are in Jewish ceremonies. Because the Jewish people did not accept the prophets and, in fact, murdered almost all of them. A few of them, for example, such as I, of Jeremiah, Jeremiah was run out of town all the way to Egypt where he died in Egypt. Uh, almost all of the others uh, were martyred in one way or another. Uh, and that is because the people did not accept 
what the prophets were telling them. Uh, now, God, again, could have wiped them all out, but that is not his way. He will try over and over and over again to try to bring sinful people back to his way of thinking. But there is a limit to that. And that is something that we have to see in our day. One of the things I really want to get across today is the fact that evil or sinfulness is more in the intent of the individual than it is in the action. How many of you have never heard that before? But likewise, good deeds are also credited to you in accordance with your intent, more so than in the action. Let me give you an example. If you go to church on Sunday, which is the good thing to do, but if you go there solely to fulfill an obligation and after you've left, you don't give a single thought about what you did, then you're only going to get a check mark because you went there to fulfill an obligation. If you didn't actually commune with God and offer praise and thanksgiving and speak to God, then why bother? Because a check mark for having attended Sunday Mass is all you're going to get. And that's not very much. So, as I've said many times, and will continue to say many times, severity of sinfulness is in the intent. Sometimes we do things that we didn't have, had no intentions of doing, and God's going to not hold us as severely as if we had done them intentionally. But conversely, good things done for the wrong reason are still wrong. Good things done without any reason are of no value. So we've got to start thinking about what is our relationship with Christ? What is our relationship with God and the Holy Spirit? It is not something that we can just go through the motions and expect God to open his arms and say, welcome into heaven, you good little boys and girls. Now, quite often you will hear, well, God died on the cross for us and that's all that was really necessary. Well, in a way, that opened the door. But if you see a door open and you don't walk through it, what good is it going to do? Let me give you another analogy. If somebody brings you a beautiful gift, such as Madge did this morning, but I don't take this home and actually consume it, what good is it going to do me? You can bet I will. <laughs> 
No, but I'm using that only as an example. If somebody brings you a beautiful gift all wrapped up very nicely and you set it there on the table and you leave it there and never open it, what good is it going to do you? That is what I'm trying to get across. Yes, Christ did die on the cross to open up the door to the gates of heaven. But if we don't do our part, then it is not going to do us any good. We have a big responsibility coming up next week. I'm not going to get into politics. But you've got to start thinking about your voting as a Christian, as a Catholic, and voting Catholic values. You should know who you're voting for and what do they stand for. Do they stand for the same values that you stand for? Or are you voting for those people solely because you think that they're going to do you some good that you want? Are you going to get... <coughs> get revenge at somebody through them. Uh -uh. That is not the way to vote. You should vote your values. And that is so important. <coughs> Excuse me. Any questions so far? No questions. Yes, Chet? Yes. Amen. Yes, a great deal of it. Uh, because that was the only way that God could communicate with mankind. It was through the prophets. And they totally ignored it. Uh, what I'd like to do is I'd like to go through and read this because I will comment on it. And if you have questions, let's bring them out. Because this is a very important aspect of our faith. The prophets, their message applies to us today as much as it did uh, 2,000 or 3,000 years ago. When one thinks of prophecy, what immediately comes to mind? And as I've said before, so many people think that uh, the prophets were there to uh, predict the future. For most people, the common understanding is that a prophet is a person who predicts the future. This is not, however, all that the Bible means by prophets. A biblical prophet is a person deeply concerned with the present day events that affect the moral and the spiritual lives of people. Having experienced God's presence and love in a profound way, the prophet becomes attuned to the perspective of God in individual lives and in the life of the community. And this is one thing that the people 
of this time period that we're talking about did not understand and in some ways still do not understand. The Jewish people do not have an interest in or a belief in a personal relationship with God. Remember in chapter 32 of Exodus when Moses goes up the mountain there's smoke and fire and lightning and you know all kinds of noise up there. It so frightened the people that when he came down they said okay you talk to God we'll, we'll listen to you we don't want anything to do with with that up there. And unfortunately that mentality has prevailed down through the ages for all of these years. God is up there in the heavens. We don't want any connection with him. Uh, and unfortunately, that is not what God wants. He wants each of us to have a personal relationship with him. Having experienced God's presence and love in a profound way, the prophet becomes attuned to the perspective of God in individual lives and in the life of the community. Taking on the perspective of God awakens the prophet to concerns of justice, especially concern for the poor, the afflicted, the alienated, and the marginalized. We hear that today. It's as if the prophet having become a very intimate friend of God, consults with God on various matters, and then feels compelled to share those insights and discussions with the rest of the community. At one point in time, Jeremiah said, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to speak for God. And yet, God within him built up this pressure to the point where Jeremiah finally says, okay, Lord, I can't hold it back any longer. I've got to. I know. Thus the prophet uses all possible imaginative techniques to communicate with the people. Symbols, stories, word plays, and forms and patterns of speech common to that day. The prophet, though through the personal relationship with God, takes on God's very mind and heart. This leads the prophet to assess people and events not on the basis of wealth, status, or possessions, but rather on the basis of the value and the dignity of every single person created in the image and likeness of God. See, that was totally foreign to the people at that time, and therefore they didn't want to listen to that. This viewpoint is so much the prophet's own that the prophet dares to speak for God, often using the phrase, thus says the Lord. But remember, he does it in his own words. I had a discussion with a close relative, the other day, who was not Catholic, but a very good Christian. And he constantly is the of the mindset that every word in the Bible is accurate right to the point. And I've 
trying to get across the fact that the Bible, yes, is the word of God, but words in a very generic way, not the words of God. In other words, God did not sit there and dictate to each of these prophets how to write. And if you get two or three Bibles together of different time periods, you're going to see that the words are different, but the message is the same. That's the point I was trying to make, but it fell on deaf ears, I'm afraid. This conviction comes to the surface most clearly when the prophet perceives community. These experiences of injustice call the prophet forth to speak, no matter what the cost. And, as I said, all of them cost them their lives. The prophet's challenge is hard to listen to because the prophets speak of matters that go counter to the accepted actions within the community of that time, whether in religion, culture, or politics. Usually, the prophet's message concerns a a movement away from being preoccupied with one's own selfish concerns to a movement toward being concerned for others, especially those who have no power, the poor, the widows, the afflicted, the outcast, the alienated, and the marginalized, and the stranger. Why do you suppose the word widows is often used when speaking about matters like this, even in the New Testament, why did Jesus concern himself so much with widows? Anyone know? Because when the person, the lady, becomes a widow, she loses everything. All of her possessions goes to her son, her oldest son. Now, the responsibility to take care of her also goes with that. But a lot of them, uh-huh, a lot of them ignored that. And the, and the widow then was put out and left with virtually nothing, no means of support. And that is, you know, that was a cultural thing at that time. And Jesus tried to break that. So that's why he mentioned it so many times, and that's why it is mentioned here. As an integral part of this community, the prophet's own challenge is to renounce renounce self-righteousness and to speak as a member of this sinful community. Despite this stance, the message the messenger is often clearly unpopular. That's where the term don't shoot the messenger comes from. Because Shakespeare has used that a few times in some of his uh, plays. Because the message is painful. And that's true, as we've seen here. Remember, the whole purpose of the prophets was to counterbalance the evil of the kings. Think about it yourself. Would you want to live with somebody who constantly pointed out your injustices or social evils as if God were constantly watching you? It would be pretty difficult, wouldn't it? In speaking from the perspective of God, the prophet always laments over the injustices 
and points out and accuses the wrongdoers, hoping for repentance and reform. Usually, a warning is included in which the prophet, in a general manager manner, tells of possible dire consequences if matters are not corrected or if attitudes are not changed. The prophet's message always demands a change of heart, mind, and attitudes, aligning them to the very mind, heart, and attitudes of God. And that applies to us today as well. We have to renounce our own will at times and seek the will of God. How many of you pray, and I'm not asking for hands or anything, but how many of you pray frequently to understand the will of God for you? Something that is extremely important, and you should consider it. Only in this manner can justice once again prevail, and God be intimately present to the community. The prophet's message is not always one of doom and gloom. Rather, the prophet continually reminds the people of God's faithful love, and concern for them. In this context, the prophet offers the opportunity and the guidance for the community to realign itself with God's love, reconciliation, and peace. Same thing today. But the challenge is that this reality will only occur if the people continue to do the Lord's work the work of justice. Just as God is faithful, the prophet spurs the people on to be faithful also. God's love and peace will be manifest if the people attend to the concerns of the poor and the works of justice. Reform of self in order to be of service to others is the key message of all the prophets. The reform of the individual self to be of service to others is the key message of all the prophets, which applies to us as much today as it did 2,500 years ago. In order for the reform to take place, the prophet continually reminds the people of God's loving arms and faithful watch on the people's behalf. If the people continue to remember God's love and fidelity toward them, then justice will indeed flourish in the land. And those are words out of several of the writings of the prophets. Now, this whole thing, I did not make that up by any means. It came right out of this book here. Yes, Chad. <laughs> well, you got to you got to be careful because there was such a thing called the guild prophets. Those were not God's prophets. All right, to counterbalance the prophets, 
Queen Jezebel, the king of uh, the queen of uh, the wife of Ahab, started a whole school to teach the prophets what she wanted them to go out and prophesy and and teach the people. The guild prophets were not God's prophets. So you got to be careful when you know you're talking about consulting the prophets. Which prophets? All right. Very important. Yes. 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 Yeah. Yeah. They try to try to remake God in their image and their wishes or likeness. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's that's very true. But I hope you got something out of this idea of who the prophets are and what they stand for. And I would suggest that you go back and read some of them. Yes, Dick. Well. It seems to me that all that I've read about the prophets, the prophets are only talking to the leaders. They're not talking to the people. And yet this says they're talking to the people. Well, yes, they they did talk to the people, but they had to talk to the the leaders because the people were only listening to the leaders and following them. Uh, they wouldn't take... For example, at one point in time, uh, it states at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, as Christ, uh, this is chapter 7 in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, at the end it says, and people were astounded because he spoke with authority. Now, he spoke with authority because he was God, but the culture, the culture at that time, was that if you did not have a, a real education, or you did not, uh, you were not a student of some famous person, regardless of what you said, it would not be accepted. So when these prophets came along, they had to speak to the leaders, because the people wouldn't have listened to them anyways. All right. I know it's not a way that we would think, uh, because we do a one-on-one. We evaluate an individual uh, on what he says and what we know. But they didn't do that. That was not a cultural way of looking at things in that time. Wouldn't it be kind of how God talks to his church, to the people through his church now? Yes, that's, the, that's an important point. I'm glad you brought that up, Mike. Who are our prophets today? Not theologians, not saints, the church. The church is the only person who officially speaks for God. No one else. Individuals can't do that. Uh, even saints cannot do that. Theologians cannot officially do that. You have I always say theologians write only to impress other theologians. And if you start reading some of the theology, that's the way it is, because you can't understand most of it. Uh, 
But the church is the official spokesperson for God today. Only. No one else. And that's something that we have to look to. We have to listen to what is the church teaching us. What is it saying? Get out your catechisms and read them. How many of you have an updated catechism? And I'm not talking about the Baltimore catechism. (laughs) I'm talking about the latest version. Okay? Get it out and read it. Because it is so important that you understand why we believe such and such what we believe. Any other questions? A few other points I would like to make uh, along the lines here. Oh, yes. Yes, and evangelization as well. Yes, he is speaking, but officially that is not an official pronouncement of the church. Okay, but yes, he's speaking as an individual, and that's fine because he certainly has a a great deal of authority behind him. But that's not exactly the pronouncements I'm talking about. Major pronouncements has to come through the church, of which, of course, he is the head. Uh, But, you know, it is done usually in the form of encyclicals, that is, circular letters. That's what the word encyclical means. Uh, That's the way most official pronouncements are made. And eventually what he is saying to the people in Sweden, I believe it's Sweden, yes, uh, will uh, come out in a form of an encyclical. Yeah, and then it will be official. Yeah, okay. One of the things I want to talk about in this time period is something that we don't often hear about, and that is the wisdom books. Along with uh, the Psalms uh, and the Prophets, but the Prophets are not concerned, considered as part of the wisdom books. Uh, you have the Psalms, which are closely aligned or related to the Prophets. And in many cases, they are meditations on what the Prophets said. Uh, but I want to explain how they came about. They were not written as prayers. What they were written for was part of a ceremony. Remember, the people could not read. The majority of the people, that is, could not read. Therefore, they did not have prayer books like we do today. They were not encouraged to do uh, a lot of private uh, or personal praying. And unfortunately, Jewish people today still don't do a lot of personal praying. Now, I'm not saying all of them, but many of them do not believe in it or are not accustomed 
to it. Uh, but the wisdom books came along at this same period of time. They were written by individuals or groups of people who were trying to get the people to see that what they were doing was wrong. And you have a number of uh, wisdom books, and I hope that you understand uh, which books I'm talking about. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah. Uh, I have a whole list of them here, but I can't seem to find it because these pages are so thin. Anyways, well, you have uh, a number of them. You have the Book of Wisdom, the Book of Sirach, Sirach, uh, Proverbs, um, uh, Ecclesiastes, uh, Song of Songs, uh, Ecclesiasticus, or Sirach, and Job is often included in that too. Now, you've got to be careful about the book of Job. It is beautiful uh, in its own right, but it is not history. Quite often people think that there was a man named Job, and he had this very unfortunate um, run-in with God and so forth and so on. Uh, Job is not history. It's an allegory. It is trying to teach us a lesson. But it does have a lot of good things to say. All of those books came into prominence about this time. Six or a few of them uh, Wisdom, Sirach, one or two Maccabees uh, and a couple others were uh, not written until the last part of Jewish history, the fourth section. This is the third uh, section of Jewish history that we've talked about over and over in the past. And I've shown you before the uh, sketch or the outline of of uh, the four periods of Jewish history. I don't seem to lay my hands on it right away, but nevertheless. Any questions? Well, we covered that a little quicker than I expected. Uh, yes? I have two questions on the readings. Yes. In um, 1 Kings 8, verse 9, it says there was nothing in the ark uh, but the two stone tablets. What happened to the manna and what happened to Aaron's rod? Well, we don't know. Uh, it is... Uh, I'm not familiar with the passage that you just quoted there. Uh, I'd have to look into it. But I... Uh, as we know, it has always been uh, thought of and recorded that there were three different items in the ark. The stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, uh, the jar of manna, and the staff of Aaron. Uh, what happened to the others, 
I don't know. But they were all destroyed at the time of the Babylonian captivity. The other one is uh, 1 Kings verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 29. It's the uh, end of Solomon. And it says, uh, Ahiah gives Israel ten tribes uh, to Jeroboam. Solomon shall have one. And I assume the, the twelve would have been the Levites, so I don't understand that, but I thought they were sort of evenly divided. No. No, no. Uh, the northern tribe, and actually the southern one, was not Levi. It was Dan. You have Judah and Dan became the southern kingdom of Judah, and all the remaining ten tribes became the northern uh, kingdom of Israel. Right? Remember, there were ten because... Joseph did not get any, but his two sons did. All right. And Levi, uh, his tribe did not get any because he was to live among all of the tribes. So the prophet did the division. The what? The prophet. Who's this guy? Aaliyah? I can't pronounce it. No, well, all right. He did not. Uh, he did not. It was a, an agreement between Jeroboam and Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, that made that final decision. Yeah. No, the northern kingdom was all of the tribes except Judah and Dan, and those were the southern kingdom. Does that make sense? This is the story where he, he takes the cloak and tears it into uh, 11 pieces, 12 pieces. Oh, that's Alicia. Alicia. I will take the kingdom from his son's hand and give it to you. That is the ten tribes. I will give his son one tribe that David, my servant, may always have a holding before me in Jerusalem. Well, the tribe of Dan, which was also part of the southern tribe, was it, remember, it was split into two parts. The northern part of that tribe was in the, I mean, the part of that tribe was in the north and part was in the south because the northern part was on the east side of the Jordan. Uh, that fizzled out. Uh, and Dan in the south was a very small and significant uh, portion. So, uh, you know, I can't account for why he's only talking about one. Yeah. Sorry about that, but I can't answer all weird questions, pardon the expression. <laughs> yeah, well, that was Hezekiah. Yeah. 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 And the prophet, 
prayed, and God gave him 15 more years. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it works. Yeah, sometimes it works. Okay. And, and that's true with us when we pray. Not all of our prayers are going to be answered in the way we want them. So we've got to be careful and willing to accept that. Our prayers uh, are expressions of our desires, but they may not always be in line with God's will for us. And that's one thing that we've got to really uh, think about, and that is obedience and submission to the will of God. Now, a lot of people don't want to hear that because they don't like the idea of submission. Uh, it is contrary to our culture today. And yet, that is exactly where happiness and contentment of life begins, is when we align ourselves with the will of God. And, you know, I encourage all of you to give that some thought. Are you really interested in God's will for you as an individual? And only at the time of acceptance can you really find peace. Yes, Willis? Like the thought that God always answers prayers, but sometimes he says no. No is an answer, yes. Yes. No is an answer. You're right. Yes. So in all of those songs, you always hear about them singing a lot. So yes. As a Jewish Seder, they have what they call the small Hillel, and that is uh, Psalm 114, 15, and 16. Okay. Uh, Those are sung as part of the Seder service. And many of the other songs are sung. That's how they were written. Most of the psalms were sung in Jewish ceremonies. They were not written as individual prayers. But I think Catholics or Christians today use the psalms more than the Jewish people do. Uh, (laughs) The one thing you'll notice, if you read the psalms on a regular basis... There are only seven out of 150 psalms that are considered as penitential psalms, meaning psalms where the person writing them or praying them is really uh, acknowledging his faults or failures and asking God's forgiveness. And seven is a relatively small percentage of 150. All the others are praise, thanksgiving, and gimme prayers. Alright? Lord, give me this, give me that. Why are you doing this to me? You know? Why they such a thing? Um, and when I read them, which I do on a regular basis, I'm appalled at times of the number of prayers that are saying, oh Lord, save me from this enemy and don't let this happen to me and so forth and so on. But how few prayers are saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for offending you. 
or for doing such and such. Yeah, seven out of 150 is a very small percentage. And that was a reflection of the attitude of the time period from which they came. And the thing is, we as a country, as a nation, and in fact the whole world, is falling into the same trap. And it is something that we as individuals have to guard against. We have so many distractions today that we don't have time for God. I have a very lovely uh, granddaughter who has two children. I have four granddaughters, but uh, this one particular granddaughter has four children, and she is so tied up with her job and her family, her uh, children is in every sport you can imagine. Uh, and I keep saying, well, when are you... Uh, have time for God. Well, I don't have time for God, Grandpa. I've got all of this for that and so forth. I said, well, unfortunately, then you've got to set priorities. Okay. And that's uh, something that has to be done. All right. Yes, Vince? Uh, there is one that is mentioned, but I don't know much about her and to my knowledge, she left no uh, literary work of any kind. But the culture, the culture was such that women had no official position whatsoever. And that they were never looked upon with any authority. Now, that started to change after the time of Christ because there were a few women deacons in the church. Um, well, I forget the names offhand. Um, but there, in the early church, in the Acts of the Apostles, you will find a few women deacons. But that died out rather quickly also, because it was a cultural thing. No other reason. Yeah. Sorry. Yes, sir. I got the, you know, reading in jungle that it's almost like they had a culture that because they were the chosen people that, you know... They could uh, do no wrong. That's, well, they could do no wrong. They could do whatever they want. It's almost like those people that say that, you know, once I believe and I accept my salvation, you know, I'm, I'm saved. And it doesn't, my life, whatever I do, has nothing, no bearing. That's right. That's right. Yes. They misunderstood the idea of them being the chosen people. If you go to uh, Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, I believe it is, it talks about the fact that they were meant to be part of a loving community that would reflect God's will out to the other nations. And yet they refused to do that. They refused and they made themselves an exclusive community and, you know, shunned all of the other people. Well, that's pretty hard to break that roadblock. And that is like what we were talking about before. If that is the way they believe, then they have to remove that before God could go further with them. And they refused to do that. And we will see by the end of this class, which is two weeks from today, how the Jewish people 
separated themselves from God's plan of salvation. It is not that Christianity broke off from Judaism. It is, as we've said right here in this reading on the prophets, uh, it is God did not abandon the Jewish people. It is the Jewish people abandoned God and left that for themselves. And God in Psalm 81 says, well, I can't do anything with you, therefore I'm going to leave you to your own designs. And that's what happened. He no longer has the the Jewish people as his chosen people. He opened that up to what he calls the people of God, that is, Christians. Yeah. Okay. Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We ask that you bless us with the strength, the grace, to open our minds and our hearts to what it is you want from us, what it is that you are asking us to do for you on an individual basis and then collectively as a church. So strengthen our resolve, strengthen our ability to open our minds and our hearts and go beyond our own wants and desires to actually seek your holy will and to live by it. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. 